0: Kenny, and you are listening to UpZoned. Welcome back to another episode of UpZone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches Strongtown's conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today are two guests. We have Kevin Klinkenberg, who is the executive director of Midtown KC Now here in Kansas City, And we also have someone who's new to the conversation, Jay Stange, who is actually a recent new hire at Strong Towns. He is the content manager. Jay, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Is it Jay Stange?
1: You know, Abby, my my last name is one of those funny names um, where (laughs) people, you know, they read words instead of individual letters. And so my last name is Stange, which is just like strange without the R.
0: Yeah, I wanted to say strange, and I had to realize there wasn't an R.
1: <laughs> really glad to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: Yeah, of course. I'm happy to have you here. And Kevin, of course, you've been on this show before, and I'm glad that you guys are actually able to get connected. I think this will be the topic. is very much something that I think you guys both have some interest in.
2: Yeah, that's great to be back. I'm thinking Jay maybe should have a blog called Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's actually a really good idea.
1: (laughs) I used to do a college radio show, Kevin, and and my nickname was Dr. Stangelove. So, (laughs) uh, you know, a a lot of those names we've played out (laughs) over the years and uh, they're all fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard something like that. Um, Well, cool. So, um, the article that we're going to be talking about today was published in The Hustle by Mark Dent. And it is entitled, Would You Take Free Land in Rural America? So small towns in Kansas are basically giving away free land and ultra cheap houses, which is what this story is mainly covering. Of course, land and housing are commodities that have become really the center of our debates in many expensive cities all across the country and even beyond. And the article points out that Small towns in rural Kansas are actually going through kind of a lower key real estate boom of their own as price conscious urban dwellers seek out different opportunities and perhaps lifestyle options. Um, One strategy that cities are actually taking in these areas is to basically have a free land program or advertise cheap houses as a way of attracting people to these towns. And the reason that they're doing that is because they have lost so much of their tax base over the years and are struggling to pay for basic public services. So these towns really very badly need reinvestment. And so we're hoping that this would be a strategy for attracting people to to live there and, and reinvest in their towns. So the article explores whether this offer is worth it, especially amid a national housing crisis. Obviously, there's a lot of trade offs that come with leaving an expensive city and opting for a place where land is being given away for free or houses are cheap. Being in a small town in a remote area is you know, obviously quite different than a city lifestyle, if that's what you are accustomed to. So ultimately, to me, this this seems to boil down to lifestyle preferences. And the article tells several stories of people who have really adjusted their own lifestyles in different ways due to cost of living. I feel like we all probably have different perspectives about this article shaped by our own lives and where we come from and our upbringing kevin i know you've written about this in the past and so i guess i'll start by asking you if you can talk a little bit about how you see the future of small towns and rural america and maybe just also asking you would you take free land in rural (laughs) america (laughs)
2: Well, it's never a bad idea to, to have land, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> no kidding.
2: It's funny. So I'm like the Midtown KC guy now, but you know, I've written about this and, and thought about it a lot in the past because I actually grew up in a couple of small towns in in rural America, one in uh, in southern Minnesota, a little town called Albert Lee of about 20,000 people. And then I went to high school in, in a town in north central Missouri called Marshall. That was about 12,000 people. And it, you know it's kind of fascinating because by the standards of what you what are described in the article, those might seem like bigger towns. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about places that maybe have 500 people or a thousand people, there's there's actually this gradation when you live in a rural area between really little towns and you know maybe county seats and places that have services, and so. But, you know, I have a lot of affection for rural America, and I enjoyed growing up there. I think I knew I was always a city guy, so I was ready to go when the time came. You know, I had a lot of lifelong friends that were made in small towns, and I find much of rural America, including the heartland, very, very beautiful. And so it's always been a concern to me about the plight of a lot of um, smaller places, it's never really particularly struck me as a great strategy when you're in a position to having to give away land and give away property. That's just not in, in a in a good place. But, you know, the article does a, a good job, I think, of providing a lot of context about what's, what's going on, who are the kind of people that might be attracted uh, to a more rural place, even some people that, you know, you might find surprising. There are some broader issues to really discuss about what can help these places revive that are really tied in with the strong towns conversation. And I know we'll get into that more, but I think there's a big conversation that is about embracing, you know, what is local and what is unique to those areas, because far too many of our rural places have really just become extensions of the wall street economy. As a result, they have really um, declined tremendously uh, over the last hundred years. So There's there's another path, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more.
0: Kevin, I don't know if I knew that you had grown up in, I guess we can call them semi-small towns. They're not the same as the 1,200 people in Lincoln, Kansas, but I was not aware of that. Jay, you have kind of lived in lots of interesting kinds of contexts. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of how that influenced your perspective and what your perspective is on this article?
1: I thought it was a a really fascinating article. I'm glad that you shared this one with us this week. I, I think that one of the things that I immediately thought about was a place where I spent a lot of time in my adult life. I grew up in Alaska, but I spent a bunch of time working in rural California in Mendocino County. It was interesting because a lot of the people who were living there had moved from San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, and they were kind of back to the landers. You know, folks who had come to to San Francisco and experienced sort of the cultural changes and the Haight-Ashbury days and then had been pushed out of the city by uh, changes in in the culture and and by overcrowding. and, And they sort of like adopted these big stretches of mountain land that were old homesteads that had been maybe logged or were no longer being used, and so they they sort of moved into this this mountainous area, and they did things like farming and the trades and illegal marijuana growing operations and whatever they could do to survive there, and built this sort of new culture. And so I, I think a lot about that choice. It's one thing to have raw land um, in the mountains of Mendocino County, and it's another thing to sort of get dropped into a small town in Kansas. I think that the choices for a lot of people have to do with. Like, what can they afford to not just acquire, but to support themselves with, you know? And so I think those decisions about these rural communities and some of them, the demographic changes that we're seeing, I think it has a lot to do with how close those rural communities might be to a city versus places that are really remote. You know, I think there might be a slight differences in the way that people would calculate their sort of economic trajectory there, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, a small town of ten thousand people is different than a small town of a thousand people. I feel like, like I have a little bit of a daydream of my own of like a, I don't know if you'd call it like a back to the towners movement, but basically, for small towns to be an opportunity for people who you know might find the cities to be coming too much, too expensive. There is all of these really beautiful. Small towns that have all of the bones that that you would want in in a walkable urban place, and at least what i found through working with a lot of smaller towns is that a lot of these cities are very excited about revitalizing their downtowns and bringing local businesses and trying to build their economic base up. That's something that I think would be really interesting and it's something that I think about a lot, actually, like what is the way to kind of help to support that and for that to be an option for people. I think that it seems like part of the reason why cities have become more expensive, though, is because cities are where a lot of the economic opportunities are. We've all heard of that issue of brain drain, where a lot of kids who grow up in smaller towns, they end up going somewhere else later in their lives. And a lot of that is driven by where job opportunities are. And the truth is small towns would really benefit greatly from retaining and attracting more people. And so I think the free land and cheap housing proposition, you know, maybe it could be a way of attracting some people, but I am a little bit skeptical about that being a major driver perhaps in conjunction with the value proposition offered by small towns and rural areas there may be cultural benefits that people are attracted to like being closer to their family if they happen to be from that place or having a tighter knit smaller community that brings them to the place i think that internet is key in this conversation because that you know with the kind of growing remote working sphere cities that have invested in broadband or fiber are going to be able to support remote jobs or people who have small businesses and all they have to do is, is you know ship things out and maybe they make things at home. And that's something you can do in a central city, but you could also do it in a small town. So I do think that kind of diversifying how people make a living and even decentralizing how people make a living is something that could really start to decentralize the need for everybody to be in one central location, which would be these big cities that could help alleviate the issue. And, and maybe we're already moving in that direction.
2: Abby, you make a lot of great points. And you know the interesting thing is we, we tend to think that like the times that we're in and the trends that are happening are inevitable. You know, almost everybody who models the future kind of takes the existing situation and just adds like one or two percent to it going forward. The thing is, cultures change and experiences change. And and sometimes right. they they happen in a shockingly quick manner and in very surprising ways. You know, we used to be obviously a country that was largely rural and a society that was largely rural. And then that shifted, you know, quite quickly. Now we're a society that's, you know, largely urban. There's nothing to say that human culture and societies can't shift back to something else because of, you know, any number of pressures that happen. It'd be crazy for us not to talk about all of the pressures that people have felt for the last two years and the impact that has had on many, many, you know, if not millions of people in our country and their thoughts about the kind of place they live in, you know, uh, how they want to interact with that place, what kind of community they want. Uh, what kind of school situation do they want for their kids? You know, there has been a stark difference the last two years over how life has been in urban America versus rural America. You know, whether anybody thinks that's right or wrong, it doesn't really matter because it, it has happened and it has impacted the thinking of a lot of people and I can certainly see scenarios and i and I even know people personally who have left larger metros to move to small towns in the last two years to escape you know, the situation and, or do something that they felt like was better for their children. Not everything is inevitable in society. Your points are well taken that, you know, a small town is not going to thrive on just giving away land. There has to be an economy. There has to be a reason uh, ultimately for people to want to be there. But uh, I think we also need to keep in mind, you know, human culture and, and, you know, sort of fuzzier notions and how they impact life as well.
1: Kevin, I, I think that uh, w- one of the challenges when you do live in a, in a rural community is, is just the basic logistics of life. When you're an hour away from, you know, shopping and you have to make a consideration every day about how you're going to get down to school, your life is sort of centered around sometimes tough road conditions and, and automobile choices it really sort of, uh, you know, narrows the range of options that you have. And, and I always feel like whether we're talking about suburban or urban or rural choices for families these days, I, I think one of the things I see that is fundamentally missing is sort of that ability to afford the starter home, you know, in, in, a, in a place where there's that sweet spot where you might be able to pay one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 for a, a starter home and then also have the means nearby to be able to afford that home. You know, it seems like one of the places where we really have a lot of mixed messages and a lot of, uh, of unmet connections in America right now is sort of in that sweet spot. And so some of the stories in the, uh, in the article that we're talking about today have to do with families that were really creative in moving into these small towns. I think there was one guy who they talked about who does some salvage yard stuff and he's renovating houses for, you know, on his own and he has a lot of skills you know, not everybody has those skills, and so to find that sort of sweet spot of, you know, income opportunities and an affordable home at the same time is is really tough. No matter where you're talking about in the United States these days.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And the article did talk about kind of the issue that comes with appraisals, which you know, even if there's cultural things that are pushing things in a direction. The banks have to catch up to this issue, obviously, and it takes investment to catch up. I think the important criticism here of the free land approach that was brought up is that, you know, a new house these days might cost $225,000, let's just say. And if you get free land in a, a city or free land in the middle of Kansas, it's probably gonna still cost $225,000 to build that house roughly, give or take. And if the bank won't appraise the house for $225,000, then and they appraise it for 150, you are in the hole. And that is going to be, you know, not only a major issue for somebody who owns the home, but also an issue for somebody who's seeking out a loan and financing to build the home. A bank may not want to do that loan. That's an issue that they actually brought up Lincoln, Kansas has has been dealing with and that they, they've recognized that the free land model may not be the best approach and that instead prioritizing rehabilitation of existing housing stock um, is really the better, better path for them. And I think that that probably makes more sense anyway, because if you rehabilitate the existing housing stock, that may lead to a future where, you know, the building something on the land is more worthwhile. So fixing what's there currently seems to be a smarter approach, uh, just in general. And it really leverages trade skills and skills that a lot of these towns really need. And if somebody can come into a town and they have those skills, and they can meet that need, I, I think that's a good point, Jay, that That could not only help support their own living and build their own practice doing that and have a whole lifetime's worth of work in a town, but it also enables them to kind of DIY their own property and make things much more affordable for them.
2: You know, it's fascinating, isn't it, how these conversations sound so similar to the conversations we have in regards to like disinvested communities in metro areas? You know, the same sort of problems with getting appraisal, getting credit. How do you build something affordably? How does somebody make a living? The overlap is really pretty incredible. I know you've talked about that on many episodes and some of the challenges. If you think about uh, a place like Detroit, where there have been so many people working hard, and they basically almost had to work in a cash economy to, in order to build and rebuild because they can't get appraisals. It's an absolutely similar you know, situation here. And, you know, that's not to say that that's hopeless. It actually attracts a certain kind of person who really wants that, you know, that, like you said, that DIY kind of person. And there are a lot of people out there like that who are looking for an opportunity to do something for themselves. It's not going to be the majority. It's not the masses. But there are some people who are looking for that. And I think uh, these places that are struggling can think more about, well, maybe this is how maybe these are the kinds of people that we really should be striving to attract.
0: It's kind of like the back to the landers, right? That wasn't necessarily the the masses, but it's a group of creative people who want to do something interesting. And this is the interesting thing they'll do with their time for this era. So I do wonder if if maybe that's something that it could be an opportunity for some of these places.
1: Kevin, you just made me think of this, some of these places where maybe... As Abby indicated, people might have some value in, you know, restoring properties instead of like building something in a greenfield. One of the advantages, of course, is that there's a development pattern that maybe was created even in a rural form a hundred years ago. 110 years ago. And this is a development pattern that um, that was successful at one time. And there are, you know, utilities present and there is a design and sort of a layout for the town. And so, you know, those are huge advantages over somebody like maybe the folks who went to Mendocino County and just built in the mountains with no water and no electricity and no anything. Right. Abby, I think that that might be a really interesting segment or nuance of this idea is to find those places where there is a successful development pattern that maybe a hundred years later we can we can recreate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to kind of think about how places, just cities, towns, are kind of always in flux. You know, we think of them as being in this state and they have been through various different states in the past. But the future state of these places, to your point, Kevin, is kind of unpredictable. We kind of assume that the current trajectory will always be. But yeah, <laughs> the past two years, I think, have really shifted a lot of things culturally. I I think there's probably a lot of psychological trauma that it will never be worked out fully, at least not in this generation. And that can manifest in ways that are yet foreseen. And regardless of anyone's perspective, I think that... There may be shifts in the future. So that is interesting to think about. You know, in addition to that, you know, maybe we can talk about what other opportunities kind of exist for for places like this. I, I think it's a it's a good point that there are lots of places that have they have the utilities, they have the bones, they have a an urban, walkable Development pattern and grid—they kind of have all of the all of the things you need to to get started, and you know, having a really a, a great place.
2: The reality is, we've had we've also had about a hundred years of policy that have impacted rural areas, you know, pretty dramatically. You know, there are certain things that were probably ine- inevitable—the march of technology and looking for efficiencies—is always going to affect things, but. You know, you think about like Gracie Olmsted's book, Uprooted, which really goes a lot into how policy change and how life has changed her hometown in, in Idaho, and uh, Sarah Smarsh's book, a Heartland, you know, similar in that regard. But, you know, there, there has been this gradual mechanization of agriculture, you know, for 100 years, and which combined with sort of increasing the bigness of everything for example, I'm old enough to remember when um, some of the smaller towns uh, around me when I lived as a kid were all the schools consolidated uh, into larger school districts. And, you know, that was just devastating for so many small towns. And, we, you know, all the policymakers at the time thought this was a great idea because it was more efficient. You know, the, the kids can get better uh, classes, more advanced classes in bigger schools, but it absolutely sucked to the lifeblood and the heart out of so many little towns because the school was the anchor for it. I can imagine a future where a society where that pendulum swings back the other way, uh, and people look to start smaller schools in more cohesive or close-knit communities and tied in with efforts to say well maybe maybe our economy doesn't need to revolve around the sort of international agricultural economy. maybe we can grow things here that are unique to here. And I think I can uprooted Gracie uh, Olmsted did a fabulous job in talking about, you know, things that I never even knew about were unique to her region in Idaho. But there, those things exist all over the country in different places. You know, Abby, just outside of Kansas City, there are small towns where, you know, peaches are a big thing. And there are peach orchards. There are apple orchards. There are wineries. There is incredible potential for, a lot of these towns to sort of grab onto what's unique to their area and maybe sort of distance themselves a little bit from the corn, soybean, wheat economy, uh, so much you know, big industrial economy and create something unique to themselves.
1: Absolutely. I, I love that idea, Kevin. You know, there's a, there's a small town in Alaska called Hope, Hope, Alaska, it's about 100 miles away from the biggest city, um, Anchorage, but the roads in between are, are, are treacherous. It's a tough, it's a tough drive um, on a lot of the winter days. And a number of years ago, you know, to your point about the school being a central you know, feature of a town, you know, Hope had like less than 100 people that were living there in the wintertime. And there's a rule in Alaska that you have to have at least eight kids to have an official public school. And so for many years, Hope went back and forth on whether or not they had eight kids for school. And they would go out and try to recruit families to come in with a kid, you know, or try to encourage families to grow they had to try and ride that line about the, about the eight kids in school. But it's interesting because, you know, like you mentioned, Hope decided to develop a little bit of a tourist economy around itself. And so it, it, it brings people in now to see the Northern lights in the wintertime and it has a uh, some parks that it's developed locally. There's a lot of people with chickens and small farms in town now, and a lot of young people have moved in. So I think that's a real world example of the, uh, of the, of the creative idea that you just had about how, Sometimes if you're going to escape the costs of the city and, and maybe change the culture of city living, you're going to have to actually roll up your sleeves and maybe start your own economy.
0: That's really fascinating to think about. and I think we'll leave it there. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how things evolve and if this kind of becomes a trend that we see in the future. There, there are so many places and it does feel like the, the housing cost pressure is building up. But there are opportunities, not only from remote working, but also just people kind of shifting their own lifestyles and saying, hey, there's I have these skills and there's opportunities in various other places. So I'm curious to see how that plays out in the future and and what that means for all all of our places. So we'll leave it there. Before we end today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show that we can share anything that we've been listening to, reading, watching. I'm going to put you on the spot, Jay. And hopefully you remembered about the down zone, because I think I forgot to tell you about it.
1: I'm totally aware of the down zone. And I actually, okay, have,
0: perfect. I actually have
1: a shameless um, Strong Towns plug that I'm going to throw out for this one, Abby. Um, One of the things that we've done at Strong Towns in the last six weeks is we've added a fabulous new columnist. Her name is Carla Thielen, and she is writing from her towns that she splits time between in Brainerd, Minnesota and Missoula, Montana. And her columns are amazing. For listeners out there who want to sort of understand about what a successful Strong Town looks like and what daily life can be like, and you want to read an amazing columnist, please check out Carla Thielen's Neighborhood Storyteller column every Tuesday morning on the Strong Towns website.
0: I love it. Thank you. Oh, that's a great recommendation. Kevin, what have you been up to these days?
2: I'm going to go on a tangent first because Jay's uh, comments about Mendocino County reminded me that I think <laughs> right, last year I watched, uh, I think it was a documentary on Hulu called Sasquatch. It triggered me because it was all about the Back to the Landers and everything in Mendocino County. Exactly. (laughs) You know, really cool, interesting documentary. Uh, But I feel like lately there's just so, it's so overwhelming with all the amount of news and seriousness that's happening on a daily basis that, you know, my down zone is really kind of boring. I've just been retreating into fiction. (laughs) so I've been reading a lot of fiction lately. I've read almost the whole catalog of Nelson uh, DeMille's novels, which I really enjoy. Uh, and now I'm on to uh, John Sanford, which are mostly sort of like, you know, detective, you know, murder mystery type novels. And at the end of the day, I find those to be just a really nice escape away from everything else. And it's it's good to tune everything out and pick up just a really good novel and, and dive into it.
0: That's actually really funny because my down zone is similar in that my husband and I have just been kind of putting on feel good you know, happy movies and the majority of them we realized uh star Paul Rudd, which is really kind of weird. The other night we're like, I think this is like the fourth movie we've put on that has Paul Rudd. So he definitely has a a movie type. Um one of the the movies that we recently watched, so so we recently watched Our Idiot Brother, which if you haven't seen it, it's a really cute movie. It's that kind of aligns with the back to the landers a little bit. And then we also watched Anchorman, which I never realized uh, had Paul Rudd in it because I didn't recognize him and didn't really know who he was when I was younger and that first came out. But I've just been thinking about that era of movies in particular and how funny the movies were at that particular point in time, like Anchorman and Superbad. It seems like we had this really amazing moment of really funny movies. And so we've kind of been revisiting those over the past couple couple of weeks just to, you know, decompress and, you know, watch things that are very lighthearted and happy.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are, those are a great bunch of movies in, in that era. A lot of really good ones to to dive into
0: yeah i highly recommend it if you haven't for a while <laughs> it's fun to revisit so i appreciate you both joining me today we will leave it there uh thanks again and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of upzoned keep doing what you can to build a strong town thanks guys thank you let me show you what I'm-